All right, let me start here. Rico Tice. Rico Tice. Isn't that a great name? Rico Tice is a pastor of a church in England. He recently wrote a book called Honest Evangelism. At the start of the book, he tells this story about when he was in high school. As a teenager, Rico Tice received the gospel. He heard it and he believed it. And the grace of Jesus just swept over his soul. Uh, Sophomore, junior, in high school in the absolute best and most beautiful of ways and so he says that he naturally went to school the next day and he just started telling his classmates about Jesus about the gospel about the glory and the beauty and the love and the reality and the power of Christ to to forgive sin and to give joy and 15 year old Rico was thinking They're going to love this. They're going to love this. But that's not what happened. Day after day, classmate after classmate, Rico just got ridiculed and taunted and laughed at, and it got very, very bad in his junior year, aggressively opposed. And he said that he remembers being on his knees by his bed and saying, Father, what is going on? I don't understand. How can your gospel that has brought me so much joy and peace and life be the trigger of so much anger and conflict with my friends? 25 years after thinking on that question, here's what he writes in his book. Why am I telling you about my schoolboy experience from a couple of decades ago? Because I think that being a Christian right now in our culture is not dissimilar to what I experienced back then. We live in a culture of growing hostility to Christ. It's not just antipathy, apathy we face, but antipathy. Many people really don't like Jesus or his gospel. Some express that politely. Some not politely at all. And so if you're going to talk to people about Jesus you are going to get hurt. It may sever some relationships. It may provoke people. Not every time, depending on our circumstances, friendships, groups, workplaces, and so on, our experience will vary, but we will face rejection enough of the time to give witnessing a second thought because I don't know about you but I don't particularly like getting hurt. We are wired to assume that if there is conflict or we are getting hurt, something has gone wrong. And so whenever I share the gospel and I get hurt or conflict arises, there's a temptation to either stop saying anything or to change what I am saying. And then he says this, most books that I have read on evangelism don't tell you that. There's always the suggestion that if you can just learn to be charming or funny or interesting as you talk about Jesus, you can avoid getting hurt. But I want to be honest in this book, that's not true. And then he says this, there's a pain line 
that needs to be crossed if I am going to talk with someone about the gospel. Okay, do you feel that right there? In other words, believing and then living and then actually confessing the gospel sometimes will trigger some uncomfortable, lousy, painful conflict in our lives. For some of us, that reality right there is not appealing at all. One of the modules that we do when we train people for leadership in the life of our church is on conflict. You cannot do gospel ministry without wading through, hacking through the weeds of conflict. I mean, number one, we're sinners. That means we're going to sin against each other and we're going to be sinned against. And we have to learn how to forgive fast, frequently, in love. Number two, when Jesus pulls this many people together in a gospel family, there are different temperaments and personalities and expectations about how things will roll, which means, like bumper cars, we're just going to bang into each other. So when we train, we talk about conflict, and we talk about things like how do we respond to conflict. You always end up with at least two different kinds of people in the room. Sometimes there are people in the room who are fighters. They don't mind conflict at all. They're good with it. Do we have any of those people in the room this morning? I don't mind conflict, right? Usually they'll put their hands straight up and say, yeah, a good fight's necessary every half hour. All right. And they love to win. It's not a good day if they don't have a throwdown with somebody. What do these people do when they ordered their steak medium and it comes out medium well? It gets loud. There's multiple visits to the kitchen. What do these people do if their neighbor puts his trash out in the afternoon and not after sundown? Knocking on the door, there's a conversation. There's a bunch of these parents in rec league basketball, Melrose, that I have met over recent years. Okay, you know, rec league basketball, it's supposed to be fun and nobody, you know, there's a score but nobody really wins. Uh-uh, I've been berated at the scorer's table by some high-conflict fathers and mothers in Melrose. Don't mind conflict. Okay, then there are always people in the room who are the opposite of fighters. They are either yielders or just fleers. How many yielders or fleers do we have in the room? Anything but being in a conflict. See, they won't raise their hands because they're afraid that I'm going to... The chef could burn their 24-ounce porterhouse steak down to the size of a charcoal brisket. And what do they do? They just dump some extra A1 sauce on there and they cut through that and they smile. Neighbor could leave their trash all over their lawn. We're talking diapers, pizza boxes, banana peels. What do they do? They just happily grab a bag and put it in and wave to him. Little Billy could get no playing time in the rec league basketball game, and they would never say a word to the coach. Just pat Billy on the head. It's going to be okay, buddy. We'll get there. Anything to avoid conflict. 
Okay, what Rico Tice was saying, what our seven verses today are saying to you and to me is that it is not possible to be a disciple of Jesus who faithfully lives for him and bears witness to him with your life and your words without sometimes running into conflict over him. It's not possible. You cannot nice your way out of the reality that the Jesus that you love is sometimes not going to be liked. And if you're going to follow Jesus, not everybody is going to like that about you. Okay, now I know that that sounds really weird to us as post-Christian Americans. A very strange thing has happened in American culture in the last hundred years or so. The real Jesus of the Gospels has been completely reworked in popular culture. Have you, have you witnessed this happen around you? We have sanded down all of Jesus' rough edges, all of them. We have whited out somewhere between 70 and 80% of what the man actually said. We just whited it out. We have feminized Jesus. We've put him in a dress. We've given him long, smooth fingernails, a mess of product in his hair. We have accessorized him with baby lambs and always the sky blue sash across his robe. Have you seen this? We have defanged completely the Lion of Judah. And we've taken Jesus and we've said you can buckle him in the passenger seat next to you and you can consult him as you wish on life. Or maybe you can put him in the back seat with a plethora of different religious figures, but you got to let me drive the car. And we have said to Christian churches, that is the only Jesus that you get to believe in and worship and confess in American culture. Follow that Jesus? Oh, we'll get along fine. But that's the Jesus you need to follow. What's the problem with that Jesus? That's not Jesus. So Jesus comes to us on the pages of Scripture as the king of all the kings as the Lord of all the lords. This is the man who rose from the dead. And as Son of God and Savior of the world, owns both creative and redemptive rights over every square inch of this universe, including your body and your soul and your mind and your mouth and your money, the real Jesus brooks no rivals. The real Jesus deserves, and also, because he deserves it, demands 100% all-in allegiance from every man and woman. Now, we know that that is wonderfully good news because this Jesus is also the only hope any of us has of stepping to the side of the wrath of God on our sin, the only hope. 
In other words, the real Jesus cannot just be liked and appreciated and tolerated. He can't. He must be received and worshipped and obeyed or rejected. It's one of the two. Tim Keller says it very helpfully like this. The claims that the real Jesus made force us to a choice. We either kill him or we crown him. You either fly to the cross in repentance and faith or you put him up on the cross in rebellion and in fury. In other words, Jesus is a line in the sand. You're either for him or against him. There is no in-between. Now, we don't rush people to make a decision on Jesus, but we just say, hey, there is no permanent foyer to stand in. There is no agnostic alleyway to hang in permanently. At some point, you're either for Jesus or you're against him. There is no third option. That means that people are going to have to choose up sides on Jesus. And whenever anybody is forced to choose up sides, what happens? Conflict. Conflict. All right, early in his ministry, when Jesus sent his disciples out on their first mission to bring the call of repentance from sins because the king had arrived with the kingdom, what did he say to them just before they left on this mission? Did Jesus sit them down and say, okay, I want you to get out there and be really nice, smile real big. Okay, there's a couple people in this church who smile real big. Sit with them and they'll teach you that friendly, open mouth, big teeth smile. I want you to wear pastel colors. I want you to wear a cardigan sweater, maybe a little scarf if it's chilly, non-offensive as you can possibly be. And get out there and you're going to have a sweet, peaceful time. It's going to be blue skies and warm hugs. There'll be no angst and no opposition at all. You can do this. Is that what Jesus said? No, here's what he said. I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Okay, I have multiple children's Bibles because we have four kids. I have not seen this in any of those children's Bibles. The, the sheep getting torn apart by the wolves. In other words, you are going to go out there humble, tender, holy, compassionate. But there are some who are going to tear you apart because of who you represent and the message that he has given you to bring. Feel that? Then he said, but that's okay. That's okay. This is why I have come. This is why I have come. And this is how Jesus said it. This is Jesus. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Okay, so he's, he's not saying he came to establish a kingdom through violence and bloodshed like Muhammad did with the literal sword. That's not how to hear these words. Sword here is a metaphorical word for division, separation, the forcing of a choice, the bringing of people to a point, yes or no. Jesus is saying, he said it, I, 
I didn't come to be liked or accepted or applauded or tolerated and just added to the the world of potential gods to follow. I have come to grab doomed sinners by the back of the neck in love and save them and to establish a kingdom with me as king, which is the only way it should be, and righteousness reigning forever. And that means that repentance from sin and obedience to my commands and trust in me is required. And a lot of people are going to want no part of that. My gospel is like a dagger. That's the original word here. Or a sword that cuts and divides and separates, yes or no, in or out. And so it should be no surprise to anybody in this room that epidemic in the biblical book of Acts that we're learning through and paradigmatic in the Christian life that you are called to live is that if you bear clear and compelling witness to Jesus, sometimes that is going to trigger conflict. That's exactly what Paul and Barnabas and Mark run into in our text today. I want us to see it, and I need us as a family to leave this room going, okay, we need to be okay with the fact that sometimes people will get riled up if we love them and lead them to Jesus. All right, let's work the exact words of Scripture. I'll put them up on the screen, and we'll see this come to life. Now, at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue, and they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Okay, Paul, Barnabas, Mark, team on a mission together. Get to the city of Iconium. Always start in the synagogue. That's where the covenant people of God were. That's where the God-fearing Greeks were. That was the first place you went to announce the good news of the kingdom of God. There's always three types of people sitting in any synagogue in the book of Acts. One is the people who are already humble and broken over their sin and believing the promises of God that he's gracious and abounding in mercy and that he longs to forgive, but that forgiveness is on him and not on them and that one day a Savior, a Messiah, a Christ will come who will usher in the kingdom of God and bring forgiveness of sins. They were believing the older covenant gospel with all of their hearts. Soon as these people heard the good news about Jesus, they were in. Where's the tank? Let me get baptized. I believe. Then you had a group of people who had followed some of the insistence of the day that it is about your righteousness, your obedience to the law, you being cleaner than the next guy that will make you right with God. Only this group of people knew it's not working. It's not working. And their life was marked by despair. And they were trying and they were hustling, but they knew that they couldn't get there. And Paul and Barnabas and Mark show up to those Jews And they say, hey, it's Jesus. It's not you. Tim taught this last week. There is forgiveness of sins and freedom in Jesus from the stuff that the law of Moses can't can't free you from. Those people too would have said that I'm in. If that's the good news of Christ, I'm in. Then there was a, a third group of people. These were the people who were leaning into their righteousness, their obedience to the law, 
their religious performance, their super cleanness, as the means by which they were good with God. You know that all set type of person? That's who this was. They were fine with the status quo. They looked around and said, hey, I'm way better than all those filthy Gentiles, and I'm actually a lot better than most people in the synagogue. I got this. I don't need to, to be saved. I don't need a Christ coming and calling me to repentance and faith in his gospel. I'm good the way that I am. The Bible says that they walked into that crowd and they spoke in such a way that many believed. Okay, when I read in such a way, I go, what is that way? And I want it. What is that way? And I want it. Well, in the book of Acts, there's been books written on the basic way that the gospel was presented. The big summary is just simple, straightforward leading of people to Jesus. That's what they did. They did that, and many believed. Okay, let's stop right there. If you were grading these guys on their gospel presentation, what grade would you give these evangelists? What grade would you give them based on this verse? If you were grading their presentation, their tone, their results, It's like an A double plus, whatever that grade is, 107. You know those kids that got 107s on the quiz because they knew all the crazy hard words? A double plus. There's no conflict. Obviously, they were clear and compelling. Bunch of people believed. Baptisms, lunch at Chipotle. Everybody is happy after this church service. You guys get an A double plus. Until we come to the next verse. But the not believing Jews, that that third type of person that I talked about, stirred up the Gentiles, the others in this city, and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Some Jews in that synagogue did not want anything to do with Christ. They heard the same message with the same tone and the same conflict and the result was totally different. These are two big conflict words in here. The first one is stirred up. It means to excite or to instigate or just get ticked off, to get angry, to get fired up. We call that riled up. They got riled up and they moved to rile others up poisoned their mind against them, meant to like instigate them to angry thoughts, to embitter them, to make them bitter. Some of these people heard this gospel message and got mad and got riled up, and there was opposition and conflict. This is Rico Tice in the cafeteria. This is what sometimes happens when you cross the pain line. You end up with pain and with conflict. And the synagogue literally gets split down the middle. And not just the synagogue, but Luke says that the people of the city were divided. Some sided with those Jews. Jesus, give me a break. And some sided with those apostles. Jesus, I'm all in. That word divided is where we get the word schism from. It means to tear or to rend. 
two parties into two different factions. When that happens, you can feel the tension. If you live in Melrose or you drive through this city for the last month, you knew that you could feel that tension with the election day that was looming, right? Did you feel this? So there was a proposition two and a half override on the ballot. Some people who really wanted to say yes to that put up these pretty white signs with red letters, yes, vote to pay more taxes to the government here so that they can do more things. One faction. This other side of people said, are you crazy? No way, no. And they put up these black signs of doom in their yards. And the city was split down the middle. Now, it wasn't half and half, but any conversation that you wandered toward about that conversation, what did you feel right away? Tension, conflict, because the city was split over it. Same thing in Iconium, tense, divided, angry, conflict. You feel that? All right, let's go back to our question. Now what grade do you give Paul and Barnabas and Mark? Do you go, ah, I was going to give them that A double plus, but now I'm thinking like, I don't know, B minus maybe, C plus. I mean, look at all the anger and the, the conflict and the angst that they caused. Maybe if they had just been a little bit nicer, a little bit softer, maybe if they had just established some more common ground before dropping the whole Jesus thing on people, they should have done a skit or like a mime or shown a movie clip, and then people would have been a lot more chill. This could have been avoided. How many people naturally in here see this and say, something went wrong. Something went wrong. All right, let me give you some words from a brother who's been dead for 500 years. I know you guys are always like, Cruz, why are you bringing people who've been dead for 500 years into the conversation? Because they've been dead for 500 years and they, they didn't live in a postmodern culture like ours, so they speak with such helpfulness to us who would be blinded from being fish in these waters. Check out these thoughts. I'm going to run them through you up here, and I want you to get the big idea with me. If it, was, if it be demanded, what was the origin of the discord? Assuredly, it flowed from the gospel, to which, notwithstanding, there is nothing more contrary than to cause discord. In other words, yes, the gospel caused massive conflict in Iconium, and that's weird because the gospel is the most unifying reality in the universe. Look, just look at the 80 of us that because of the gospel, we have become family. It, the gospel unites like nothing else. This is weird. The gospel caused division. All right? But the forwardness of men caused that the gospel, which ought to be the bond of unity, to become the occasion of tumults. In other words, it wasn't the gospel's fault. It was the forwardness or the hard-heartedness or the wickedness of the men and the women in that city that heard gospel, drew the line in the sand and said, no, and then went on the attack. 
when any schism arises. Bonus points if you use the word schism in a sentence this week. When any schism arises, before we condemn those who seem to be the authors, we must wisely consider who ought to bear the blame. Feel that? Where's the blame coming here? Before you go saying it must have been the preachers, those divisive Christians, they're the ones that caused the conflict, he says, pause for a second. And then he says this, we see here that the city was divided in a way that or whereby some were brought unto Christ. The Spirit of God pronounces this to the praise and not the shame of Paul and Barnabas. In other words, anybody in here that wanted to lower their grade, be careful, be careful. The Holy Spirit is applauding the work that they did. The Holy Spirit is going, I see the conflict, I see the division in the city, but many were swept into the kingdom of God. A++, Paul and Barnabas. That's God's grade on this ministry. And then this last sentence. That same rule we must observe at this day. It assuredly is a miserable matter to see division among men, but the unity is accursed which separates us from God. In other words, all else equal. In general, as Jesus' people in these cities, we should long for and love to work toward peace and unity in any way that we possibly can. But peace, harmony, cannot be our highest virtue. Our highest virtue needs to be faithfulness to Jesus. I would rather see a city divided and many swept into the kingdom of God than a city united and everybody's going to hell any day of the week. This is why I love the last part of this. In verse 3, he said, as this explosion was happening around them, so they remained. So they remained. A better translation of this word, so right here, is like the word still, or and yet, or irregardless, or regardless, whichever is the right way to say that, regardless of the fact that a line in the sand was drawn and the city got divided and they had crossed the pain line and they were getting hit, regardless, what did they do? They remained speaking boldly. Day after day, they crossed the pain line in love for that city so that some might believe. Okay, now, we're not naive. We know how the story ends. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers, so these are the guys with the guns or the, or the, the power to execute, to mistreat and stone them, they learned of it and they fled to Lystra and Derby and the cities of Lyconia and the surrounding country. Okay, so what's that? There's wisdom here in this sermon, right? Let's not be stupid. When the mob is outside of your door with buckets of kerosene and a flamethrower, what do you do? 
You call Uber, you tell them to pick you up around back and you jump out this fire escape and you get out of there, fine. But what's the last sentence, the big idea? Here it is. And there, wherever they landed next, what did they do? They continued. They continued to lead people to Jesus. They continued to believe the gospel and live the gospel, love the city, cross the pain line, and bear witness to Jesus. Okay. Seven Mile Road. Jesus is a stone. He's a rock. For some of us, he becomes the cornerstone of a new life, and we have joy unspeakable. For others of us, he becomes a a stumbling block, a big rock in the way of what we want for our lives. And what do you want to do with that rock? You want to get that rock out of the way, whatever it takes. Jesus is a fragrance. To those who are being saved, his message is like a Yankee candle. Pink sands, Nantucket breeze, cinnamon apple, sweet to us. To others, the fragrance of the gospel, it's like the dumpster out back of Taco Bell on a 107 degree Texas day. Rancid, awful. If someone is trying to lead you back there, you put up a fight. I don't want to go near that. We need to be prepared for that. You need to be prepared for that. Sometimes your life and your words will be the most beautiful thing someone has heard. Sometimes they will do anything to shut you up. Nobody knows this better than a preacher, right? Such an odd job. So when you are all checking your children in downstairs and chit-chatting with each other about what time the Patriots game is, I'm standing up here, and if I can get the technology to work, I'm looking down at the ground over here, and I'm like, every week, I'm like, there's the pain line. Here we go. Here we go. That's the ministry of the word. Say it clear. Say it straight. But get ready. Some will not like what you are selling. It's surreal to actually watch people's faces as you preach and see which side of this line they're standing on that day. If my brother pastors, Matt, Kevin, Justin, if they had like five bucks for every time that they were pulled to the side and there was a complaint or a frustration or a problem with my preaching, we'd be like buying three family houses up and down Linden Road right now. Now, some of that is because I'm a sinner and I'm a loser and I can be ornery and my words were not helpful and they are the first ones to tell me that and everybody in this room is free to give me a call and say, hey, can we catch up on something that you said? I'm trying to understand this better. Absolutely, no sinner is perfect. No preacher is perfect in his words because he is a sinner. But sometimes, sometimes, It's because Bostonians just don't want any part of Jesus Christ. They just don't. And when that is the case, you can't just sit and listen and leave without attacking, questioning, conflicting in your heart.
at some point I realized, okay, if you've called me to this, sometimes people are going to get riled up. Please don't let it be because of me. Let me be invisible. But I understand that it may be because of you. Then a preacher, an evangelist has to settle in his heart. That's okay. I would rather have a thousand people hate my guts if one person found their way to life in Christ than to keep my mouth shut and not cross the pain line. Okay, now that's true in an intense way for a minister of the word, but it is true for all of us. Your yes to Jesus will mean conflict in your life, in your own soul, with your family, with people who you're tight with. It will, because Christ lays claim to every inch of your soul and their soul. You need to set your heart to say, harmony is good, concord is good, but not at the expense of truth. I'm going to continue to believe and live and declare the gospel. And if there's pain, so be it. But I also know that there's glory in that. All right, let me pray for us as we seek to do that together. Father, I pray for a steadiness of spirit in this church. I pray that not once would any of us rush to judge others because there is conflict surrounding their life or their words, that we would be slow to judge, that we would be quick to understand, hey, sometimes the gospel riles people up. I pray for anybody in this room today who has not stepped clearly onto the side of Christ and clung to his cross, that they would see the nature of this gospel is in or out and that they would jump in in trust and repentance. I pray for all of us. Jesus, let there be no quarrelsomeness, no belligerence, no fighter spirit in this church. Let us love peace but also let us love your son and his glory and his honor and his gospel so much that we're willing to cross the pain line together if that means that the gospel is clearly being seen and heard. Jesus, you are our life, you are our joy, you are our hope. I pray that we would have peace in our soul which would enable us to endure the tensions and the angst of being pilgrims on our way to your heaven. Give us steady legs and a bold and humble spirit in this journey, I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, thanks for listening to that.